Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by world-renowned sports performance psychologist Jim Lohr to speak about his new work and new book, Wise Decisions. Dr. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Connor. I'm excited to be with you and I uh, hope we can create some value for your audience. Thank you. I'm more sure and certain that you will. Uh, Jim, as we begin with every guest that comes on the show, Typically, what I ask is the earliest football memory, but for yourself, I'm going to begin by asking, can you please take us through your earliest sporting memory? Well, yeah, my father was basically a professional baseball player, and um, I can remember, you know, for hours and hours and hours, he was my coach for nine years. He was in training camp for a professional team and ended up tearing his rotator cuff uh, as a pitcher, and that was the end of his career. And then he went on and became a civil and petroleum engineer. And But um, he had two sons, and uh, we were destined to throw a lot of baseballs. <laughs> and uh, my earliest memories, they didn't know at that time how many pitches you can throw at how young. And I was throwing as a 11-year-old, I was throwing curveballs and knuckleballs, and, um, but it really had an unfortunate outcome because I ended, up as, I ended up with a dead arm by the age of 13, 14, and I could, I, to this day, I cannot throw a baseball. And so I ended up playing basketball. I became a pretty good basketball player, and then I played tennis my whole life, and I played a lot of golf, so sport, and I have... I have three sons. One played professional tennis, and they all play sports. They all play tennis. Um, and uh, I have seven grandkids. They all are athletes. And so sport has been a very critical part of my life and development, and it has been for all the members of my family. Uh, we have a tournament every year where we have 16 people, and we actually create a draw and we actually play points and work out how to make it even for everyone. And it's the most fun thing they do in the entire year. So they love competition and I love I love setting it up. And I think we're beginning to touch upon it there now, just the transformational power of sport. But when did you first realize, perhaps at a younger age, even Jim, that you could use sports to positively and profoundly impact people? You know, that came much later in my life, uh, Connor. I really, uh, I, I received my master's and doctorate in psychology, became a licensed psychologist in, in uh, Colorado and got became chief psychologist and executive director of a very large community mental health center that served the whole central and southern part of Colorado. And I thought I would be doing, it was a big job, 8,600 square mile catchment area, nine offices, very big multi-million dollar operation. And I thought I would do that for the rest of my life. I was very young and just you know, had a very big job, but I started to, uh, I, I became very close friends with a guy by the name of Dr. Joe Vigil, who's a track and field legend. He was an Olympic legend and in his ability to produce um, incredible track and field athletes, um, particularly distance runners. And he got me running and he got me excited about the application of psychology to human performance, which I've never thought about. He kept asking me, you know, Jim, as a psychologist, what, what can you tell me to help me get more out of my athletes? And I said, I looked at him like a deer in headlights. And I said, you know, I don't have a clue. I've spent all my life learning about how to help people who are struggling mentally to get a little healthier. But I have no clue how to take normal, healthy people and make them extraordinary. And this was back in the 70s. And he said, well, Jim, you want to look into this. It's going to be a huge area. And you might be, you love to pioneer things. So that was really the first time I started to think about the value of sport in building strong human beings and from that point on it's been a center for a center focus of all my work how can we take the stresses of competition 
of sport, which sport is actually a compressed version of life. And you can have more crazy wild experiences in one year in sport than you have in 40 years of life. But if you learn how to handle it in sport, when virtually very few people die from the mistakes you make, but as a surgeon or as someone who's uh, in a high performance venue and actually as a mother or father, sometimes mistakes because you didn't learn them earlier can be catastrophic. And so all of my passion has been for many years now, trying to leverage, to use sport to help people get, become extraordinary in their ability to manage stress, become good, solid human beings, and to build the muscles of character, most importantly, moral and ethical character strengths. It's amazing that you touch upon that there because uh, one of the most famous football players and indeed coaches of all time, Johan Cruyff, he so well eloquently put it, he called sport the university of life. And I think you yourself, Jim, you had a great way of depicting this in a presentation that you gave approximately seven, eight years ago, where it was the $50 million test. <laughs> would, would you be so willing to engage with my audience now and describe and explain what that was? Well, I, I have many versions of that. What Which version did you hear? I've made a number of... Uh of uh, kind of variations of that, uh, which version did, did you, did make sense to you? The one that most kind of touched upon me was where you presented two solutions for the $50 million. One was increasing the win ratio between from 50% up to 75%, or would you take the money and choose over the course of the season to raise valuable character traits amongst um, your players, such as integrity, trustworthiness, so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. I, I have, I've done so many different variations of that. I love teaching. I love being in front of people who are eager to learn and um, trying to help people understand. You know, I, I take people often to the end of their lives. I found that's the most powerful learning experience to ground people in what really matters. And so I asked them to, I, I you know, Stephen Covey, who was a, a very good friend, uh, particularly his son, Stephen M.R. Covey, um, he made a statement that I thought was very profound. He's made many, but he said, you know, start with the end in mind. So if you if you know where you want to end up, at the end of your life. And then you work backwards and you begin to recognize, well, what are the values that actually represent the most critical area of importance in your life? Um, and so I, I would take people, and I've done this literally with thousands of people. And at the Institute, we had nearly 400,000 people by the time um, up to the current day, uh, I, we sold it to Johnson and Johnson, but it was a living laboratory. And I absolutely uh, love the opportunity. I love to collect data. I love to see what results are. But one of the most powerful uh, experiment, really exercise that I did was have people go and create, go to the end of their life and create what they wanted to have on their tombstone and to etch it out in stone. And they were allowed maybe six words or maybe two short sentences. Most of us are not granted the privilege of deciding what's going to be on our tombstone. Other people do that. And it's often just to make people feel good. It's not necessarily true. But you have the opportunity to carve what you believe are the are the representations of the most successful life you could have had. If this is the legacy you left behind, this is the ultimate, ultimate um, idea for you of a successful life. And I call that getting home. Getting home. Home is, is simply ending up at the end of your life where you want to end up. And so... Uh, people, you know, start working at that. And it's hard work. You have to really go through all the dimensions of your life. What do you really want to represent 
most importantly, while you were here, something that actually um, has no equal. This is the most important you know, uh, thing you left behind in terms of your impact, the legacy that you had while you were here on planet Earth. So they work at that and work at that. And then when I have a large group together, I ask them to share publicly what they had on that tombstone, either a sentence or two or the six words. And the room is absolutely astonished because they realize that all the things that maybe had been getting most of their energy never showed up, never made the cut. Literally the cut in stone, how many world records they had. And I've worked with 17 number ones in the world, took them to number one. And none of that ended up on the tombstone. None of it. How, how much money they made, you know, what ended up was they wanted to be an extraordinary mother or father. They wanted to, they might, but the words kindness, um, compassion, or um, loving, caring, they ended up with words and people were going, wait a minute, did everybody copy from everyone else? It was always their connection to other people. And these extrinsic achievements somehow got left off, yet that's what was driving them for the entirety of their life. And they began to realize that if you want to have this, if you want to have an extraordinary, be an extraordinary mother or father, you know, just like you want to, you want to be a mass of billion dollars before you die. You have to really, really work like crazy to make that happen. So then we work backwards. If this is what you want to leave, how are you going to get it? These are earned. This is not normal. This is not something you just get because you want it. Every single day, and the, and the enabling force is your energy. You have to invest energy, just like you had to invest energy in carving that into that stone. You're going to have to every day invest energy in those things. You get back what you invest your energy in. And it, energy really um, creates life. It's taking life out of your body that you created and putting it into something or someone. And so you work backwards and then you keep track every day of the investments that you've made. And if you wanna get home, you're gonna to have to work hard. The navigational system in your car doesn't work if you wanna go home and you don't know where home is. But once you know the actual address, not just the zip code or the city, what does it mean to be an extraordinary mother or father? What does it mean to have integrity in your life? What does it mean to be a person who represented kindness at the highest level or compassion or honesty, integrity, a great character and inspiration for others? What the heck does that mean? And so you have to really get granular and really understand that if I want that, I'm gonna have to dig hard and work hard to make that happen. And I have to work at it every day. I have to be obsessed by making sure those are the things that I represent at the end of my life. And when people understand that, they understand what getting home is. Even if their home was not a great spot, all we're saying is getting home is ending up at the end of your life the way you, where you want to end up. And your, your, your life navigational system will not work if you don't have great clarity. If you're Energy is going to making more money or being world number one, and you don't pay attention to the things that matter most when you really think about it, you're not going to be fulfilled or satisfied. But you can have it all, maybe not maybe all, but you can have pretty much the trophies and the championships, but you better not lose sight of what I found to be the core of a person's life and that is the most important purpose you were born with and that will take you um to the to the essence of what life is all about for you and um and that's what getting home is so that was the most powerful exercise that i did i have a number of variations that i worked with over so many years 35 years and 
um, it has changed people's lives. I will tell you, people have have done that, and that I get feedback all the time that that navigational system helped them to to really chart a path that was not clear, and they feel so much more aligned in their energy and in their life with what they most want out of life. And so for me, that was very exciting. I'm always looking for new ways to challenge the way people, we are just here, we don't know what the heck this is all about. We're trying to figure it out. And anything that can help us to get more clarity on what this world that we're in is all about. And now I'm trying to apply it to youth um, we have this, we had the Human Performance Institute. Now we have this Youth Performance Institute that we're trying to create this, all this understanding for young people. So I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunities I've had to be around amazing people. And uh, that's part of my getting home. That's absolutely profound. And it's probably been one of my favorite segments on the podcast today, Jim, you know, 115 episodes in. Um, so many questions, but the one I wanted to delve a little bit deeper into was the distinction between a human and youth performance field in terms of you know, how soon does this process of getting home begin? And the reason why I'm asking is because, as you know, most pertainingly yourself, you know, for young sporting professionals getting into the industry at 20, in their 20s or 30s, those times, in, uh, they necessitate really and a period of expansion and a period of experimentation. And there's a lot of cerebral horsepower that goes in to that. So perhaps you may be willing so as to provide me with a few tips and techniques as to what's going on in the youth performance field. Well, it is a very tough time for young people. They are struggling mightily and COVID has just exacerbated the situation in an almost unimaginable way. I've seen I've seen it with my own grandchildren. Um, I've seen it with so many young people. They are addicted to social media. They're getting just blindsided everywhere. And uh, they were kind of forced into isolation with their peers at a time when they need peer involvement almost desperately. And, uh, you know, they're struggling. What, and there's so much negative news all over the world. I, I talk to them and I'm stunned because they say repeatedly, what difference does it make? I'll never see adulthood anyway. The world's coming to an end with uh, nine countries having nuclear capabilities and wars everywhere and uh, epidemics and, um, you know, all, all the things that are, they have exposure to so many negative things and it's just exploded on social media. So they really see what, what is life all about? So they really can't, they have no idea what getting home is, none. All they know is, is that there's stress, all this performance stress, their parents want them to be successful in everything, get into the best colleges, get straight A's, be the best on the sports teams. And they have pressure everywhere they go, yet they kind of feel lost inside. And they don't really have anyone that, you know, is really kind of connected to them in a very deeply personal way because they've become isolated. It's a very dangerous scenario. So um, the Youth Performance Institute is all about trying to help them understand the the whole notion of purpose and that you know Viktor Frankl once said you know pain is inevitable suffering is optional suffering is pain without a purpose and the healing part of most of our lives is our connections to other people and the beauty of sport is that if you're on a team you all are under the same pressures and, you know, you have to, and if you have a coach who understands why sport is even important, has nothing to do with winning and losing, has nothing to do with winning a great championship or building the portfolio of skills of, of success for the coach. 
or making you as a parent, the scorecard for a lot of parents is, I'm a success if my kids are achieving. And they put a, a direct link to success, to achievement. And this absolutely undermines the fabric of these kids because achievement is not going to make the cut on their tombstone. So I've written two books on character and the importance of character. And I see these, these are the thing, character, moral and ethical character is your treatment of other people. You care about them. Are you connected to them? Are you honest? Do you have integrity? Do you, um, do you really want to, to inspire others to do great things? What we learned is that the more you get out of your own way and realize your life is not about you, it's about what you can do for others to make the world better, the game changes. It wasn't about you. You had no role in coming on the planet Earth. You won the lottery of life. It was a gift. You get a life by giving it away. You don't build a life by being successful yourself. You bring people together in a way that enables them to build something extraordinary where a lot of people succeed. And so the more this institute were able to bring this understanding, sport is a fantastic vehicle for helping young kids find their way and learn how to deal with stress learn how to get along with other people, learn how to subvert their own identity for the team's sake, not for their own. It's not about making stars. And this really is a very, very hard lesson for parents because they were brought up in a culture where achievement was everything. And if, if their kids aren't achieving, it's a direct reflection of their failure as a parent. And uh, so changing that mindset, that sport, is a gift, a gift to help these young boys and girls to develop the muscles of character, of connection, of honesty, of integrity, and all the, the competitive skills that go along with that can be leveraged for helping them succeed in life in ways they never could have done had they not had this brilliant coach who understood what, what sport was all about. The purpose of sport is not to win. It's to win with character and to lose with character and to build a portfolio, the portfolio of an extraordinary fully functioning person. And the more you get that, the more valuable sport will be for you and for all the members of that team. And everyone matters. More important than you as an athlete is you as a person. And anytime the sport experience or anything you do undermines kind of the belief in yourself as a person and what you can do in the world, the greater the risk to you and uh, the, the more treacherous whatever it is that you're doing uh, becomes in terms of your getting home. And you touched upon it there, of course, with your own grandkids. Looking at kids nowadays, Jim, and meeting them where they are at, what are some of the techniques and tools you find is best suited to enabling them to take that larger look at life, zooming out? Is it visualizations? Is it living by values? Is it story living itself? That's a great question, Connor. Um, you know, I, I just completed a book called Wise Decisions. Um, and... Um, my co-author was Dr. Sheila Olson Walker, who has her PhD in behavioral genetics, brilliant woman, brilliant researcher. And we are both on this board of the human of the Youth Performance Institute. And we were commissioned to bring the most important asset, most important competency we could for children to start out with a book for adults and then translate that into children. And all my work. I really, I wish this had been my first book because it took me almost an entire career and lifetime to come to the realization that the most important asset we have is our ability to make good choices and to make wise decisions in life. If you don't make wise decisions, 
your life is going to become a train wreck. And that also takes you directly into your values and how you, how you actually front load any decision you make based on what criteria is important. So, you know, we make, uh, and people aren't even aware, we make somewhere around 35,000 decisions a day. It's stunning. Uh, 245,000 decisions a week and about 12 million decisions a year. And most people, most parents don't teach it because they don't even know. If I ask you, how do you make decisions? You go, no, I just make them. You don't really know what's the process. It's not taught in grade school and kindergarten. It's not taught in high schools, junior high. It's not taught in colleges. It's not taught in most uh, graduate programs, most corporate universities, there might be a few. But why is that? When it maybe fundamentally is the most important competency we have and to help kids make better decisions about whether I should take the drugs, how much time should I spend on social media? If they're left to their own devices, the way kids learn to make decisions is watching their parents make decisions and see how it plays out. Um, and if parents are just making, making decisions out of anger, frustration, resentment, fury, pure shoot from the hip, they don't think about it that much, they don't discuss it that much with their kids, their kids end up doing the same thing. And so we're trying to help um, illuminate, we put um, a microscope uh, on this decision-making process and try to understand the science of it. What do we really know about how does this brain actually make decisions? Where is it? Where does it occur? And we we came up with this uh, acronym called Yoda, your own decision advisor. It's not the Yoda of Star Wars, but there's some similarities. We have an advisor. It's this private voice that ultimately determines the decisions we make. And we want young people to really have that Yoda constantly upgraded and informed so that the decisions they make are getting better and better. And that's why sport is so important because you make all these decisions, whether it's tennis or basketball or baseball or soccer, you're always making decisions and you want to try to front load those decisions. Most of the decisions we make are automatic and instinctive, but the really important decisions, we have to be more reflective, pause, between that stimulus and response. It's the most sacred space we have as human beings. The ability to pause, to think about it, to reflect on our deepest values, our sense of purpose, and what does it mean to get home in life? The only way, when you get in your car and you've, you've got Siri helping you get home, you know, Siri has to know what the address is, has to know where it is. And then Siri has to make a series of constant and continuous decisions, take a left here, take a right here, go 100 feet here and go. And if Siri doesn't have good information loaded in, you're not going to get home. And kids have to understand this decision-making process. Their, their, their Yoda is going to guide them home or take them in a tragic, potentially tragic direction. So we want them to understand that voice inside their head is running the show, whether they know it or not. And the sooner we get kids understanding that and taking responsibility for their decisions, whether it's throwing a tantrum tantrum and rather than just, you know, taking them out and giving them a spanking, you take them out and say, we can't, that's something we can't do here. We're disrupting everyone else. You can make the choice of throwing a temper tantrum but that means you and I can't go in and eat with the rest of the family. And, or you can make the decision to kind of settle down. We can't disrupt other people. And if you do, I'll be very proud of you, but I'm gonna let you make the decision. And then we're gonna to have to, you and I both are gonna to have to live with the consequences. And that's a two-year-old. And you begin to work that territory every single day with them, help them to understand the consequences for bad decisions and good decisions, and hold them accountable. And you spoke about this before, but the most important coach being that you will ever have in decision-making is the voice no one hears but you. It's that inner voice, the master storyteller. 
Yes. You know, the stories we tell ourselves soon become a reality. At what age does that inner voice start becoming to be heard? Well, um, it the, the inputs to that dynamic in the brain actually are occurring. Some of that is actually occurring prenatally. The auditory cortex of an infant can actually pick up the sounds of the mother's voice, the father's voice, siblings, grandparents, whatever. And that the, the, the accumulative, um, uh, you know, uh, impact of all those different auditory uh, impulses and signals began to form a very crude private voice. And by the time the child is five, they actually have, you know, there's evidence that they actually have this kind of ability to talk to themselves and to actually think about it, reflect on it. And uh, that inner coach starts to kind of run the show. And so um, if you had a lot of really negative stuff really imprinted in that private voice, a lot of people have terribly dysfunctional private voices. They're brutal. And it reflects almost always the input from the most important people in their life. Could be a parent, mother or father, could be what a sibling, an older sibling is always saying. Could be a brutal coach who just made them feel stupid and dumb and thought that's the way you get kids motivated is you just intimidate the hell out of them. And that begins to form inside their head. And so they talk to themselves the way they've been talked to. And so often that inner voice is not an advocate. It's not a voice of wisdom. It's um, it's an almost always um, voice of um, beating you down, almost always making you feel you're not good enough. You've never really lived up to expectations. And you probably will be a failure. You know, that voice from your parent who said, you know, I don't know what's the matter with you, but if I'd have had your opportunities, I would have been a superstar. You're such a loser. And you just think that's going to motivate them. And it actually has the exact opposite effect. It's loaded into their Yoda. And now their Yoda is bringing forth this messaging at critical times in their life when they could really shine. This voice comes up and says, wait a minute. You're a loser. This isn't going to work. And as you said, it often becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we try to get that private voice. What I One of the biggest breakthroughs most parents have when I'm working with them is I tell them that the way you speak to your children will one day be the way they speak to themselves. Be very careful. That um, if you understand that when you say to your child, you're such a dumbhead, and one day they will begin to say to themselves, you're such a dumbhead. Is that, or what do you really want them? What do you want loaded into their Yoda to guide them home, to have a great life and to understand it's not about them. It's about the impact they have on others and how much they're able to inspire others to have um, uh compassion and empathy and strength for the storms of life. And it, it's a game changer. Um, it actually, as I collected the data and I realized in my own children, I have three sons, as I mentioned, it changed the way I interacted with them. And I want coaches to understand the way you speak to your players will one day be the way they speak to themselves. And then they will speak to their children that way. And it looks like it's coded in the genes because it's generational. And it's not coded in the genes. It's all learned. It's acquired. What I'm most intrigued to know about to regarding the inner voice is it's, it's a given that some people can be successful in despite of not listening to this inner voice, but in your own experiences, Jim, for over 30 plus years of working with countless athletes at the pro level and below all across a variety of domains, have you worked with anyone ever 
who's really struggled with that tension against the inner voice. Well, it is true. You can sometimes be quite successful and have a very dysfunctional private voice, but it's a lot harder and you don't get the satisfaction. You don't really feel like, you know, you're never satisfied. It's all, you're only as good as your last performance. And if you don't, if you don't measure up then you go, yeah, well, I knew this was the case. It was pure luck that I won it last time. So, um, and you're wasting so much energy. You know, you have the world often requires an unbelievable amount of fighting spirit and, you know, investing energy. And, but when you invest so much energy in fighting yourself, when you're not on the same team, when you're not coaching yourself, I always say to people, coach yourself the way you would coach someone you deeply cared about in the same situation. What would you say to your best friend in the same situation you're in? Would you say to them, you're such a numb skull, you're an idiot, you have no, you're not gonna make it, you're dumbhead, why? You don't work hard, whatever it is. Is that the way you would speak to someone? Is that the advice? But that's the advice you're giving yourself. How is that supposed to work? And so a lot of times in the work I've done, I've had to clean up that space. And for me, the best way to clean it up is through journaling. I'm a very big advocate of journaling and journaling is there's a lot of different ways to journal. But for this purpose, I have people script with their hand, not on a type, not on a keyboard. They don't type it out, but they write in longhand or print how they want to speak to themselves, the, the messages they want to give themselves in tough or difficult situations. And they do it over and over and over and over again until that voice becomes conditioned. And now it's you, it's your voice. I want you to have, I don't want you to have your father's voice unless it's really something that you cherish and is so helpful. But I really want you to help you find the voice that you really want to guide, you guiding you for the rest of your life. You're very, if it was all projected onto a jumbotron in a big stadium, what you say to yourself, you would be immensely proud. It's the best coach you could ever have. And that coach is in your head. And most people would doubt you will ever have for the rest of your life. So I guess we're now we've got to start over again, huh? Well, it's all it's all good. It's all good. But um, I mean, Jim, we just spoke about it there, about the inner voice on the billboard. I mean, I love that. The, the only thing I'm thinking about now in my mind is we speak we speak also about making decisions right from a positive state or a negative state is that to be confused with making decisions from a point of abundance or a point of scarcity well you know decision making is a complex process and um you have to have the right um mentality and information um, loaded in before you actually start making the calculus. Um, and if you have the perspective of abundance, um, you tend to see the world differently than if you see things uh, from a scarcity perspective. And generally, an abundance mentality opens you up to uh, you know, just seeing the world through a much more positive lens and scarcity means it's either mine or yours. And you tend to get into a very kind of parochial way of looking at everything. Everything is a competition where abundance is, you know, we're all here. We're all trying to, you know, help each other have better lives. And there's plenty to go around in terms of happiness and health. We just got to help one another. So, but that is all your, your Yoda has to be educated to help you get to that spot. So the most important voice you will ever have in your head is the one no one hears, as you said earlier. Um, and that Yoda has to be trained every day. And parents have the most direct influence on how wise and the kind of judgment that their son or daughter is going to make. 
and you don't know it in the moment, but you want to help them understand that decision-making is everything. You can have everything else going great, but if you make poor decisions, a poor de a decision to take drugs or drink and drive or go too fast or, you know, maybe just skim a little bit of money off the top or whatever, and you start that as a young person, can have catastrophic consequences for the trajectory of your life. And I think parents' role, that's what they need to do. Even though they were not taught this, they need to step up and realize, wait a minute, this is something I cannot just hope that my kids will learn by osmosis. I'm gonna be more directly involved in helping them understand and accept the consequences for the decisions they make. And of course, I mean, this has been your field for, you could say, 30 plus years, Jim. I mean, you've been researching this your whole life. What I'm most intrigued to learn a bit more about is how is this research for this book, how has that affected you in your own daily dealings? Well, I have to say I'm embarrassed that I didn't really come to this earlier in my life. Even in sports, decision-making is everything. We just finished the NBA championships here in Denver. And the decisions that each of the players make, when to shoot, when not to shoot, when to pass, when not to be uh, trying to be a star, but to actually help the team win. And this is all goes back to coaching and to their Yodas that how it's how their Yodas have been trained in tennis, how many decisions you make in an, in an hour match about, should you go down the line cross court? What, what, um, before you get out on the court, what to drink, how do you prepare? What are your pregame meal? How do you, what kind of, um, you know, visualization or imagery training you've done and how much and what specific, you're making those decisions constantly. And really a great coach is helping you own those decisions and be accountable for those decisions. So I'm embarrassed that I didn't really come to this earlier in my career. I'm a data guy and all the data was, there's just not a lot on decision-making. And even though you kind of recognize that's it, it took a deep, deep dive, actually on behalf of kids, to start with adults and to do a scientific kind of look, a deep dive into the decision-making process, where in the brain are decisions made and how is it properly vetted how do we know we're getting, um, where are the instinctive mechanisms? You know, Daniel Kahneman wrote a brilliant book on thinking fast and slow and uh, really helped us understand how the brain has basically two gears. One is that we can make decisions like lightning fast, which is where most of our decisions are made. And then we have this reflective capability. And, uh, the more we're able to sit and think and ponder and access the wisdom of the body, there's wisdom in the emotions. There's wisdom in the gut. There's wisdom in our heart in terms of compassion and kindness. There's great wisdom in our, in our ability to make logical and analytical processes work, to actually look at the facts and to analyze them. And if we look at all the different assets, the sources of wisdom that our body can produce, and we get into a balanced state, when we make those decisions, we're gonna make the best decisions probably that we could possibly make. And that is a reflective process. But if you train Yoda to kind of not just reflexively go off and you're angry to get back, or if you just, you don't wanna spend the energy to, takes too much energy to think about that stuff. You know, you could possibly make some really bad decisions uh, that may be extremely costly. So, and as I said, parents, don't worry so much that your parents are not listening to you. Just worry that they're watching you. And that is how your kids are learning decision-making is they watch you make yours. And then what kind of state are you in when you make them? And how are those decisions? playing out fantastic and it's 
obviously indicative of the cutting edge research that you've done, Jim. You know, I'm most intrigued about, of course, I've only been engaging with your work for under two years as we spoke about off air and it's really profoundly impacted me and shaped my perspective as to how I've seen sport. It's brought me back, you could say, home to a way of which I'd begun my coaching career and why I wanted to get into the game of football as well. So, like, my next question would be for you is, like, what are you studying now? What are you researching now that's cutting edge that will become widespread in 10, 15 years in a public source of knowledge? Well, you know, I'm just following my passion. And right now my passion is for youth is to apply all this understanding that we learned and really had unbelievable success with adults. Let's take it to where it's most needed and that's with young people. And so the book decision-making was written for parents, coaches and teachers because they have the greatest impact on young people. And now we're translating that book into language appropriate, age appropriate for young people. And um, we are, we're working like maniacs to try to get that messaging right. And the, the, the teachers, you know, the most important teachers, maybe are their parents, their coaches, and, um, you know, adults. But when we really got into looking at it, kids really listen to other kids their own age. So what now we're working on is training people, uh, young people to be mentors for others who have actually figured it out and to help them with their Yodas. So we're, we're training young people to be mentors of other young people, parents to be mentors of other parents, coaches to be mentors of other coaches. Um, and, uh, so, you know, and teachers to be, you know, mentors for other teachers. And we want to know that the person who's teaching us actually sees the world I'm in. So kids tend to discount as soon as they see it's an adult Jim Lair speaking to them, they kind of glaze over. But if they have one of their own peers, particularly if it's a superstar. So we're trying to recruit superstars, people that they admire uh, in their own generation and have them actually talk about these issues and what, and, but we need to have people who do it and actually see benefit and come back and actually become um, really a source of wisdom and good counsel for people who are the same age, who really have the same issues that they do, whether that would be maybe dyslexia or maybe depression or maybe they're suicidal or maybe they're on mental health meds or, and they're struggling mightily or they have conflicts with their parents just constantly. And they, they got cut from their high school team and now they don't really know why they even put all those years into it because now they can't play anymore. And we're looking at all the issues that kids are struggling with and trying to find mentors who are age appropriate and who can actually speak to them with wisdom and with a great perspective, even though they're the same age, because that's what kids listen to. So that's my, it's my passion now. It's been an unbelievable and equally fascinating conversation, Jim. And the way I end every show is I ask for that one bit of advice, but usually it's tailored towards people, towards individuals that are at the beginning of their journey, at the beginning of their path. Today, I wanted to tailor my question towards that coach or that individual who's begun the journey. They're knee deep inside the journey. They could be weighed down by the process. They could be weighed down by results, by the general weekly routine, so on and so forth. What would be the one bit of advice you would have for them to find the way home? For coaches and for parents and teachers, is that what you're suggesting? Yeah. I would I would just start by saying that you have no idea, most parents, coaches, and teachers, about the power you have to really change the trajectory and to give young 
young people, the more you believe in them and invest in them and care about them, you change them. You can have a profound impact when there's so many other influences that are just so unhealthy. You can be one of the greatest sources of wisdom in their lives and by great example. And the most important lessons that you teach are in the moral and ethical realm. How you treat your honesty, your integrity, your compassion, your humility, your sense of, you know, just um, purpose and what matters, your values, and you represent this in their lives and you care about them for real. And um, so I, I guess for me, it is once you understand you're on a journey for the rest of your life and you can share that with them. What is getting home for you and helping them to use sport to get home, become better, more fully functioning human beings that we're all proud of. And if we get that message out, I will tell you, no one loses. Everyone will win. And what I've learned, because I worked, helped six, 17 number ones get there, the more you're aligned with your values and a sense of peace in your soul, and you still are an unbelievable fighter, you want to make big things happen, you can have great extrinsic achievements. You can be number one in the world if you have that capability and be an extraordinary human being in the process so that you win in both camps. And that's really the final um, kind of really winning formula for us all. We wanna be great achievers, but more importantly, who are we becoming as a consequence of the chase? I wanna become a great person first and then a great achiever second. Jim, I have to thank you so much uh, for coming on the show today. I think your message in here has been probably some of the most profound that's happened on this podcast since its inception two years ago. Um, I'd like to thank you for all your great work. I hope it becomes more and more widespread and revered as all it should be. And again, really looking forward to sharing this with a wider audience. So thank you for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome, Connor. I appreciate your um, it's very clear you you do your homework, you you read your your heart and soul is in this, and it, it's much uh, appreciated because you're also out there trying to make a real contribution to other people's lives. So thanks for the opportunity to be on your podcast, and I hope we have a positive impact.